Seeker's Invasion Part 2 Note to Reader Any of the underlined text or titles are links to a Wikipedia page to give further immersion into the real-world aspects used in telling this tale. Underscore Previously on the Seeker's Invasion During a typical humdrum day, the world was brought under attack by UACs, unidentified aerial crafts, that appear to be giant robotic insects. T, his husband Lee, their two cats, Lily and Socks, along with his parents, Mary Beth and Tom, all take refuge in an abandoned lodge on a mountainside near their hometown. The lodge was a great spot, large, empty, and was able to see the entire valley overlooking the alien machines wreak havoc on fellow earthlings, and a few were using their lasers to bore into a cornfield, for what purpose? We may never know. But, while searching for Lily, who ran off inside the lodge's wine cellar, T and Lee discover a nuclear blast door newly installed, and the door's safeguards have its sights on T. Now, the continuation of the Seeker's Invasion. Part 2 A small click could be heard from inside the military-grade turret mounted above the massive door as the laser sight steadies onto T's heart. Lily purrs as if nothing was happening, cradled in his arms. T's heart lurched, as does his stomach, when a loud crackle was heard from overhead. He shut his eyes, thinking this was it. You are trespassing on government property. Please remove yourself, I have authorization to fire if the door is approached. A voice rang throughout the wine cellar. The voice was stern, but a slight shake in the voice was noticeable. T's eyes flew open, he turned and handed Lily to Lee, then put his hands above his head. I am an American citizen, seeking refuge, we have little children upstairs and there are four of these massive alien robots just at the base of the mountain. Please help us. T pleaded. There was silence, but the camera made a slight jerk, then steadied back on T. We are aware of the situation outside. This is a government installation, please remove and confine yourselves upstairs. Do not repeat what you have seen down here. I have authorization to fire on any. The voice over the intercom commanded but was cut off by Lee, who stepped into the light beside T, still holding Lily. Please, you are better than this. I immigrated here to get away from tyrannical regimes. America is supposed to be for the people. Lee shouted. There was a long silence. T and Lee exchanged looks. The camera, the laser light, nor the turret even twitched. T puts his arm around Lee, and with his other, he pets Lily's belly. The two men were looking at each other lovingly, wondering what will happen in moments to come. Two and a half hours ago. Elizabeth Harris, a tall fit Hispanic woman, walked into her barn wearing blue jeans and knee-high riding boots. By her side was her prized American paint horse, named Bernie. Two men of great stature followed her, both were in black suits with curly wired earpieces traveling out from under their collar into their ear. Ma'am. Ma'am. A tall younger man in a stylish farm jacket came prancing up, and he truly was prancing. He walked as if he was afraid to step in anything that could get his fashionable attempt at country boots dirty. He held a portfolio of notes and a box with a bow tied to a string that he held in his hand. The box swung with every step. Chase. You need to relax, I only come up to the ranch once every so often and with Phil in Essex, and the kids at college, it's actually quiet here. So, stop being so dainty and come ride with me. Elizabeth teased at her assistant in amusement. She aided her horse into its stables. Yes, ma'am, I'll work on that. But you are needed in the situation room. The chopper is ready. And um, ma'am, forgive me, 
But ah, uh, there is also a direct message from POTUS, ma'am. The young man's nerves were getting the better of him as if he was indeed allergic to nature. Chase, you really need to love nature. And what did Abby say? She mused, walking with him out of the barn, still followed by her secret service agents, who both began to walk faster, getting closer to her after getting word over their comms. Ah, uh, yes, nature. So thrilling. He replied with disdain in every syllable. But the president has requested a message be passed on to you. She says. Chase takes in a breath of annoyance, not looking at all amused but this unprofessional communication that he must relay. You are to get your ass on the helicopter, with haste, and without lip. Unless you aren't bringing your apple crisp. Then you can stay up here and contemplate your memoirs. Ma'am. Chase repeated, inhaling a deep breath at the end. Elizabeth lets out a laugh, smiling, she replied. You did good Chase. Well, let me run in and Chase holds up the box on the string. Already got it and you have a change of clothes in the chopper. Chase informed her with pride in his voice. Elizabeth patted him on the shoulder. What would I do without you Chase? She said, climbing up into the helicopter. Nothing ma'am. You couldn't do nothing. Chase retorted flatly. They exchanged grins as the two men following them climbed up into the helicopter. A third man in a suit closes the helicopter door. Evergreen is secure and in flight. The man said, patting the chopper as it's starting to take off. The helicopter lifted up and several black SUVs parked around the farm began to take off as well kicking up dust from the dirt road. As the helicopter flew overhead, the emblem on the side was visible in the sunlight, it read. United States of America, Department of State. The helicopter landed softly on the backside of the White House. The Secretary of State walks into the West Wing's offices and down several sets of stairs, followed by a gaggle of people. A moment later, with a buzz and lift of the lock, the black door opened to the Situation Room. Several men and the two women were in military uniforms, a few people were in business attire, all sat around a long conference table. The two most powerful people in Washington sat at the top of the table. The chief of staff, Charlie and Hurst, a short, stocky white woman with slicked back hair and glasses. A very formidable individual. Charlie and had navigated up the ranks at the Pentagon to be one of the most respected women in all of Washington and even among some of the old school generals. Then six years ago left the Pentagon to help run her best friend's presidential campaign, the woman seated at the head of the table. President Abigail Washington, a tall thin black woman in her late 50s. Rising through the political battlefield in the House, then the Senate, getting elected with 64% of the popular vote in her second term, with an approval rating in the high 60s, which is impressive for a presidency in the second year of their second term. The president turned her head as the Secretary of State walked through the door. Sorry to pull you away from your weekend but there has been a development. She points forward as Elizabeth took her seat to the left of the president. The man across the table from the secretary, next to Charlie Ann, leaned forward. Liz, it's what we feared. The asteroid has shifted and it will enter our gravitational pull by tomorrow, unless the speed changes again. Not to mention with its speed, the impact will severely damage all life on Earth. It's a worst-case scenario. Paul Jeffries, the director of NASA, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, explained. Paul and Elizabeth, or Liz to much of her friends in Washington, had known each other for years. Unless it slows down. A voice was heard along the far wall of staffers behind Paul. Meaning? 
Elizabeth questioned, looking around to find the source of the voice. The few of the people blocking her view rotated their high-back leather chairs to reveal a man seated in the corner. The man was short, balding, and wore a decades-old brown vest over his button-up and tie. Meaning, we seen three days ago that the velocity was decreasing as it entered the inner solar system. The man spoke up. He awkwardly stood up, wondering if he was even allowed to stand if President wasn't. He had a mouse-like demeanor as he held his clipboard high on his chest. But that was because it collided with another asteroid, right? Elizabeth leaned forward, looking around the president to Charlie Ann. Yes. Liz, this is Dr. Lyman. He's a contractor for NASA and shared a proposal that was not, uh. She glanced over at him for a second, then continued unabashedly. It lacked creditably. Charlie Ann replied coldly. As chief of staff it was her job to say the cold hard truths the president could not be caught saying. I'd like to hear it, all the same. If we are talk the end of the world here, then I'd like to hear all hypothesizes. Elizabeth looked at the president. Abigail looked Elizabeth up and down, then thinking of no counterpoint, exhaustedly rolled her eyes. President Abigail, Chief of Staff Charlie Ann, and Secretary of State Elizabeth had been friends for decades. All women of the same generation who had fought against the patriarchy to rise in the ranks to the three most powerful seats in the world. To their friends in Washington, they were known as the Power Trio. To their enemies, they were the Sanderson sisters, referring to the Disney classic, Hocus Pocus, about three evil witches. They were truly friends though, not just DC pals. When Abigail had her first child, Elizabeth arranged schedules, and took up the slack on her initiative in the house and Charlie and yelled at the insurance company to cover pregnancy costs. When Charlie Ann got married to her second and third wife, Abigail officiated the ceremony, and Elizabeth was the maid of honor. Elizabeth's husband, Abigail's husband, and Charlie Ann's second wife all served in the military together, and their kids were all friends from the time they could walk. All three were a unit and knew each other's thought processes. Dr. Lyman could you give a short, synopsis of your idea for the secretary? Abigail said looking away from Elizabeth. Thank you Ms. President, ah. Uh, Madam, uh, ma'am. Dr. Lyman stuttered out. Charlie Ann and Abigail exchanged looks, have little faith in this man. Dr. Lyman? Take a breath and just talk to me. Elizabeth told him, in a soft voice but sternly. Yes. The hypothesis that the object slowed by bumping up against an asteroid is flawed in several ways. One being, there are no remnants of an impact, or even evidence there was even a... Ah, another asteroid near enough to come into contact with it. 76 hours ago, when we first found this object on satellites, we noticed a single boost in radio waves that emitted from the craft, I mean th the object, and then it began to slow down. This object, the asteroid in question, was nowhere to be found before 76 hours ago. Not by the Deep Space Network detected this sucker. But... Several of us at Groom Lake believes this is not an asteroid but a probe or Elizabeth cut Dr. Lyman off. Groom Lake? She said with a smile, glancing at Charlie Ann, who had her back to the doctor, and he couldn't see her grinning in amusement. Yes, ma'am. I am employed at Edwards Air Force Base. In their unidentified aerial craft detection program. Dr. Lyman answered with more confidence in his voice. So, you work at Area 51? Researching UFOs Elizabeth mused. UACs and yes, ma'am. Dr. Lyman said flatly. 
So, you think little green men are inside this upcraft? Elizabeth asked. She looks over the faces of Charlie Ann, Paul Jeffries, and then glances to her right at the one of the Joint Chiefs of Staff of Space Force who glanced over at Dr. Lyman and spoke. Madam Secretary, what Dr. Lyman is trying to suggest is only speculation and... The Chief of Space Operations, General Donald Fitzwallis, attempted to explain then a staffer came up to him and handed him a note. What is it? President Abigail commanded of him. General Fitzwallis's face drained of color as he read it. He reached forward, grabbing a remote on the table, pressing a button, and aiming the remote to the screen on the wall. The center monitor opposite the president changed from an image of the object taken as it exited the asteroid belt to an image of the object just beyond the moon. The moon's arced horizon could be seen in the foreground, with all its gray and pockmarked glory but in the blackness of space at the top of the image was the object. The image began to play on a loop, like a gif. First, it looked like a solid object like the image they had seen for the last three days, then as the loop played through, a gaseous substance, or possibly a mist or air, was released at the center, from all side. It would have been pretty if it wasn't for the horror that came next. The front half of the object began to break apart. The last part of the looped images showed thousands of tiny pieces. Well, tiny compared to the original object but had to still be massive in size to see at such far distances. What the hell is it doing? Charlie Ann asked the room, mesmerized by what was happening on the screen. A phone rang on the wall. An officer standing next to it answered after one ring. The president looked over at him. Did the asteroid break up? Is this good news or bad news? Will the little pieces just bombard us but this will be survivable right? She looked at the director of NASA, who was looking at a text on his iPhone. Then Paul looked up at her. His already pale face was slightly green. Madam President, the larger piece has completely stopped just beyond this side of the moon. And the little pieces are. He swallowed, but his mouth was dry. He spoke with a croak. Our information making their way surrounding Earth. Some have already halted just beyond our atmosphere. It's an invasion. Lyman was correct. Paul let out. Every head in the room turned to Dr. Lyman. What do we do doctor? The president asked, her voice was stern but fearful. I, I am. The technology they must possess too, ah, uh, to halt such a massive spacecraft and fly at such speed. Traveling over 239,000 miles in just minutes is unfathomable. We just wait and see what they do or want. May they come in peace. Dr. Lyman sheepishly suggested. That's not an accessible answer. She retorted, looking around the room. The officer on the phone hung up and walked the president. Ma'am. STRATCOM, United States of Strategic Command, has confirmed, along with NORAD, North American Aerospace Defense Command, and even the NOAA, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, has placed in reports that this swarm has halted in near-Earth orbit. The officer informed the president. She looked around the room. As a constitutional lawyer for years before venturing into politics, she knew what her next step must be. She took in a deep breath. Under declaration of emergency. I must declare martial law, we are at war with an unknown non-terrestrial enemy. The president stood up. The rest of the room followed. We don't know if they mean us harm. Dr. Lyman pleaded. Paul turned and gave him a dirty look to be quiet. No, you are correct but we have to assume the worst but hope for the best. Thank you for your candor, Dr. Lyman. The president said, 
He shut up quickly, recognizing the dismissal. They could enter our atmosphere at any moment, with whatever intentions. Abby, it's time to issue continuity of operations, and activation of sealing project ARC, Alliance of Rescue Civilization. Charlie and told the president. Yes, I agree. Inform the rest of the NSC, National Circuitry Council, and one of the generals interrupted the president. Madam President. This is defeatism. Let's let STRATCOM and CIC, Combat Information Center, do their job, if they enter US airspace we launch. Taking these bastards down? He ended my dramatically pounding his right fist into the palm of his left. But, before the president or anyone else could speak, Dr. Lyman stepped forward again, and spoke. For a civilization of this kind to travel undetected, accelerating and decelerating, at speeds that should not be possible, by known physics, we are dealing with a tier 2 or tier 3 civilization. Nuclear weapons will only damage our planet, it will not do much if any damage to them. They would have evolved technologically past nuclear weaponry before we migrated out of the caves. Dr. Lyman explained in fury at this barbaric suggestion, making reference the Kardashev scale of civilization. This isn't time for theorizing, goddammit. We need to. Enough. The president shouted. Shutting down the general and Lyman's words. There are too many unknowns. We continue with continuity of operation procedures and assume the worst. General, if a single one of those crafts land on any government or military installations, you have my go-ahead to rage war against them. President demanded of the room. The general who spoke out swelled with pride. Yes. Ma'am. He said. Dismissed everyone. Do your duty, and let's protect our sovereignty and the people. I'll see you all at Mount Weather. President Abigail told the room. She goes to turn. Then the general said in a booming voice. A-10 hut. Every military officer, secret service agent, and even the individuals in business suits clicked their heels and saluted President Abigail Washington. She looks each one in the face, holding back the emotion swelling in her throat. She takes a deep breath and raises her right arm. She salutes them back. Godspeed everyone. Just a few moments later, the president, chief of staff, and the secretary of state climbed the white marble staircase of the White House with haste, followed by more than a dozen secret security agents. Charlie Ann was on her phone as Abigail and Elizabeth walked ahead a few steps. Once we are at Mount Weather, we need to contact our allies and coordinate a response. Elizabeth told Abigail. Charlie Ann hung up her phone call and stepped up between them. FEMA will issue an emergency alert if the craft start to enter our airspace. Charlie Ann informed them. Elizabeth received a text and read it aloud. The Prime Minister of Norway has issued an order of their air forces and naval ships to protect the Svalbard Sea Vault at all cost. Elizabeth looked up from her phone. Good. Abigail replied. Cover Raven. Cover Bulldog. Cover Evergreen. Rang throughout the halls of the West Wing as agents swarmed their protectees. The head of the President's security detail approached them. They have just fired on and destroyed the ISS, International Space Station, plus, several of our, Russian, and Chinese satellites as well. The formation is on the move and descending through the atmosphere. He informed them. Was it an accident? Maybe they just hit them on approach. Elizabeth questioned, always the devil's advocate. Charlie and gave her a look. No ma'am. This is the live footage from just moments ago from the ISS cam. 
He held up his phone and showed them a video broadcasted just moments ago. It displayed the Earth from orbit, with a piece of the ISS solar panels obstructing the top right corner. Out of the bottom, several massive objects that looked like dark triangular crafts with legs could be seen zooming by, then a flash of blue light and the feed ends. What are those things? Charlie Ann, stunned, said out loud. Ma'am we need to get you to safety. Now. The agent told the president. Then in a flash mob style, the secret service agents begin to usher the three women out the doors to the lawn that Elizabeth had just been on 30 minutes ago. The agent closes to Elizabeth puts his hand up to his ear, listening to information or instructions. Escort Evergreen. He ordered. Two agents seized Elizabeth under the armpits and turned her away from the president and chief of staff. What the hell, John? Put me down. Elizabeth demanded. Abigail and Charlie and turned on instinct as they heard their best friend in distress. Gentlemen. What's the meaning of this? The president ordered in her full authoritative voice, everyone on the lawn paused, the two agents put Elizabeth down, as they had lifted her about three inches off the ground. Ma'am. Under PPD 40 to maintain government continuity, the line of succession cannot transport within the same vehicle. The risk is too high. The agent next to the president informed her. Charlie and closed her eyes, knowing this procedure but had forgotten in the rush of things. He's right. Liz, go on your helicopter, we will meet you at weather facility and I'll call when we get on board. Charlie and confessed, pleading with her to understand. This is bullshit, she's Abigail was cut off by an alarmingly high-pitched tone emitting from everyone's phone. It's the emergency alert. We need to leave, Abby. Charlie Ann informed her. Fine. Liz just go. We will see you in a few minutes at the facility. Yes, Madam President. Elizabeth told her, they hug, then Elizabeth lets go and turns to hug Charlie Ann. As Charlie Ann reaches out to hug Elizabeth, she looks up, as Elizabeth was taller than her and seen a massive structure emerging out of the clouds. Jesus fucking Christ. Charlie Ann yelled, her demeanor changed. Get the president and secretary to their choppers now. She yelled at the agents. In one swift motion, the two agents again lifted Elizabeth off the ground escorting her to her helicopter, as did the agents surrounding the president. Charlie Ann ran from behind. It was utter chaos as the helicopters lifted. People from inside the White House could be seen running out of the exits. Black SUVs flew out of their parked positions, following the helicopter's path, and in the distance, a giant robotic insect-looking craft lands on the National Mall near the U.S. Capitol building. On the President's helicopter, Marine One, Abigail sat in between two agents away from the windows at the center of the seating area. Charlie and sat across from her and dialed Elizabeth, putting her on speaker. Has there been any word on the vice president? Abigail inquired. He was having a luncheon with the speaker and majority leader at the Capitol wasn't he? I texted him this morning about our meeting later in the week and he mentioned it. Elizabeth could be heard saying over the speakerphone. Ma'am. He and speaker are the move and being escorted out of the Capitol as we speak, but, the president's head of security began to inform them, but Elizabeth's voice could be heard cutting him off. Holy shit. Are you seeing this? Oh Henry. Elizabeth could be heard screaming. They all look out the window to find out what she was referring to. As Abigail and Charlie and peered through the window look at the machine insect, their jaws drop. A brilliant blue laser emitting from the craft was cutting through the dome of the capital of the building. 
Forget Air Force One. Go directly to Mount Weather. The head of security ordered the pilot. The helicopter took a sharp left and rose high in the sky. A male's voice could be heard ordering the same on Elizabeth's plan as well. Is Henry safe? The president commanded her agents to answer. Is the vice president and speaker secure? She repeated. An agent gets on his radio, inquiring. Charlie Ann tries calling the vice president directly from another phone in her pocket. Regular cell service is jammed in DC, ma'am. An agent told Charlie Ann. Damn it. Ma'am. The speaker was killed during the attack on the Capitol, and the vice president is MIA. He never reached his transport. The agent informed them. Fuck. Charlie Ann whispered to herself. One of the agents, with a briefcase handcuffed to his wrist, stepped forward and placed it on the table between her and the chief of staff, they'd both look up at him. He then hands her a thick phone reminiscent of a 90s car phone, with a large antenna attached at the top. Madam President, Stratcom is asking for authorization code to launch. He tells her. She takes the phone. But before she could put the phone to her ear, her head of security put his hand on her shoulder. Ma'am. It's confirmed Vice President Henry Tillinghouse is dead. Henry. She muttered, closing her eyes. The agent with the briefcase opens it. With no time to process, in a daze, she reaches forward, placing her hand on a scanner. It flashes green, and a drawer pops out of the bottom with a dozen or so thick cards encased in individually wrapped plastic sheath. Each plastic casing has a either an insignia, symbol, or in a few cases the flags of the countries of combatant adversaries on the front. She glances at Charlie Ann before grabbing one of the red cards. She lifts it and looks at the cover. A silhouette of North America was etched into the plastic, with a black shield over the etching and white outline of a missile was at the center of the shield. Below the insignia, seven words in bold read. Direct Inland Intervention Authorization, Sequence and Code. She snaps the plastic casing to reveal a white card, no different than that of a business card, and began to read off the codes. This is Falcon 048 Whiskey Tango. Granting authorization for the deployment of launch within our realm against combatants on our soil. The president stated, reading off the card. Confirmed. ICBMs, Intercontinental Ballistic Missiles, redirecting deployment within American borders. Confirmed with code for launch. The STRATCOM officer stated in an official flat tone, Intercontinental Ballistic Missiles is the United States of America's hair-trigger readiness defense. An arsenal of nuclear-armed missiles are kept ready and ready to launch at a moment's noise if the command-in-chief, the president, gives the code for launch. These missiles can travel up to 3,400 miles, so an ICBM launched out of Alaska's silos could reach any point in Eastern Europe, hence the name Intercontinental, the creation of such missile was to attack an enemy on foreign soil to protect American lives, but there are contingency plans in place for launch if an unstoppable force invades the U.S.'s borders. But the use of nuclear weapons, especially on American soil, has catastrophic side effects, potentially killing hundreds of thousands if not a few million and poisoning the area of impact for hundreds of years. Abigail Washington, before today, was a staunch advocate nuclear disarmament and revising the hair-trigger readiness method, but today she had to make the decision to sacrifice the few to save the many. Ma'am. They need the confirmation code for launch. The agent who handed the phone to her instructed softly. May those that survive and their descendants forgive us for this. The president said out loud. My God. 
Elizabeth could be heard whispering into the phone. Sierra Foxtrot Niner Romeo Bravo 33 Alpha. Elizabeth began to read the 11 digital alpha phonetic code on the back of the white card. Taking evading counter maneuvers. The pilot of the helicopter shouted. One of the giant machine insects hovered in front of the aerial convoy heading to Mount Weather. The machine hovered without any sign of propulsion, but a loud drowning hum was heard. The plate covering where the eye would be if this machine were an actual bug, which it had as tricking resemblance to the thorn bug, shifted to reveal a tunnel from within the machine that began to glow orange. The helicopter did a dive attempting to go under the machine insect. The four F-18 fighter jets start to fire, hoping to distract the alien craft to firing on them instead of the president's aircraft. In the distance, another helicopter could be seen flying up and over the machine insect, then taking a sharp right. A puff of gray smoke and what looked like fireworks shot out the back. Through one of the windows, Elizabeth was watching back at the president's helicopter. Then without warning, a brilliant blue laser shot out of the face of the machine vaporizing the entire helicopter and all those inside. No. Elizabeth shouted, tears welled up in her eyes. As the machine turned its laser onto two of the F-18s, the other two took off in opposite directions and taking formation around the Secretary of State. Inside, Elizabeth still watched out her window. A voice over the radio crackled to live. Embassy One, confirm that Secretary Harris is on board and in safe condition. The pilot responses. The Secretary is alert and aware, sir. A satellite phone rang as the pilot responded to the radio, an agent answered the phone. Embassy One. Be advised, your new call signal is Marine One and President Harris needs to be escorted to Mount Chester. Affirmative, sir. Call sign recognized, President Elizabeth Harris will arrive at Mount Chester in ETA of 22 minutes. The pilot responded. Wait. What? We need to go to Mount Weather, the rest of the cabinet, and top brass are assembling there. Elizabeth jarred to alertness from her shock of just witnessing the heartless annihilation of her two best friends. No ma'am I have orders to get you to Mount Chester. The pilot replied. Madam President, you are, the agent on the phone approached her, she swirled around in a fury. Don't call me that. Ma'am, you are needed on this call. He extends his arm, handing her the phone. She nods, starting to grasp the gravity of the situation. This is Elizabeth Harris. Liz, this is NSC General Hill. The woman on the phone said, Elizabeth relaxed. Nancy, are you safe? Elizabeth asked. Yes, but you need to listen. With the destruction of Marine One and the Capitol, and confirmation of Henry and Rick's deaths, you are now acting President of United States. General Hill informed her. But what about Scott, the Senate pro tempore, he is next in line. Elizabeth argued, not accepting her fate. Elizabeth had only accepted the state position out of loyalty to Abigail, never wanting to occupy the throne herself. Elizabeth. Scott Montgomery was rushed to the hospital on his way to Mount Weather due to a heart attack from all the excitement, and his detail didn't make it to the hospital with him, you are the command-in-chief. The general explained. Elizabeth swallowed. President Washington was in the middle issuing the launch of our ISBMs on these alien machines. I do not have codes to complete the launch authorization. The launch is now a no-go. The machines landed right on top of the silos. North Dakota, Utah, New Mexico, Texas, Alaska, and even main launch sites are all under attack, 
and we cannot contact them. I just arrived at Mount Chester. Mount Weather and the FEMA facility were fired upon, and it is no longer a viable option. Mount Chester was always meant to be a backup safe heaven for this exact contingency. Unfortunately due to cutbacks over the years, it only has a skeleton crew of few low-level guards, and supplies to only last about six months. General Hill continued on, Elizabeth sat back in her chair. Drinking from a bottle of water, she pulled from the mini-fridge nearest her seat. The agents all watched out the window, the head of her security was on his phone, and the pilot was speaking on the radio, she took it all in as the general continued to talk. I have several of my staff here with me, and several of yours are being escorted inside the facility as we speak. With your secret service agents we will have enough supplies to ration for a year, if need be. And. Hang on ma'am. The general went silent. Elizabeth held her breath, what else could go wrong? It felt like a lifetime ago that she was off riding Bernie through the woods as the smell of her horse, fresh cut grass, and the wind flew past her. She shut her eyes, holding on to that memory. Ma'am? Elizabeth opened her eyes as the general spoke. The helicopter took a hard left and began to descend. There is a machine that just landed in a cornfield at the base of the mountain. It's firing directly into the field, as if it's digging? But, seems distracted, however, hard to tell what sensory instrumentation the machine has so your helicopter will drop you off on the opposite of the mountain in a supply tunnel. Instead, of you coming directly to the surface entrance. Plus, there's a vehicle ascending the mountain to the abandoned hotel that hides the entrance to our facility. Your agents will assist you so you won't be spotted. And list don't argue with them, under presidential protocol they have the authority to literally pick you up and throw you over their shoulder to get you in here. Elizabeth smiled for the first in a long while at these words. Abby, said something similar to me earlier today. I'll be a good girl, and see you in a minute. She told the general. Yes. Ma'am. Then the phone went dead. Elizabeth hung up the receiver. She glanced out the window and could see smoke billowing up from what looked like a power plant on fire. Then she saw the machine in the cornfield General Hill mentioned, another machine was landing beside it, extending its height and firing its blue laser into the ground. As they flew around the mountain to the backside from the abandoned lodge, she noticed four people getting out of a truck at the entrance to the lodge's front doors. A second later, all she could see were trees. Ma'am the chopper won't land, it will get as close as it safely can for us to jump out and take cover. Then it will take off again. With this facilitate being the closer bunker, the chopper needs to pick up others. Are you comfortable with that arrangement? Normally, the president is not without an exit vehicle, but under these circumstances it's our job to get you into the bunker and for you to run things from there for the foreseeable future. And the chopper still has enough fuel to aid other top personnel in getting here safety. The head of security, John, explained. Agreed, I can handle running the woods to get to the bunker. Elizabeth stated. Perfect, ma'am. And John, I have one request. She said, looking him in the eye. Yes, ma'am? We are going to living together in an underground bunker eating dehydrated and canned foods. Stop calling me ma'am. She smiled. About 300 yards over the hill from the abandoned lodge was a steel grate, covered in leaves and natural debris. Almost unnoticeable to the naked eye. As the helicopter dropped down, the nearby trees began to blow, several animals took off, and the grate's leaves blew off. The grate looked like a draining covering you would see in a parking lot. 
It was large enough a military Humvee could be lowered comfortably down inside. Below the helicopter hovered a little above the ground as two of the larger agents jumped out and rolled onto the ground. They ran over to the grate and lifted it off to the side. Do like they did, jump and coral your legs and roll. John yelled over the loud propellers overhead as the door of the chopper was wide open. Coral and roll. Got it. Elizabeth replied. The helicopter was about 10 feet from the ground, the two agents already on the ground prepared to aid the president when she jumps. 321. John yelled. Then with a bit of nudge to her back Elizabeth jumped, curled, and rolled, not perfectly, but good enough not to cause her harm. John jumped, and before he finished rolling, the chopper was already 50 feet in the air. The F-18s could be seen circling high above the mountain and following the helicopter. The agents all escort Elizabeth to the grate's opening. One agent climbed in onto a ladder that descended down into the supply tunnel. Elizabeth climbs after him, followed by John, and the last agent stayed up top to assist the others that should be on their way. As Elizabeth jumped off the last few rungs on the ladder, she looked up. The grate's opening was 70 feet up. Just behind them was a giant shiny metal nuclear blast door, identical to the one inside the lodge's wine cellar, the main entrance to the facility within. There was a beep, and the door's hinges began to engage and swing open. The door was so thick there were rollers halfway under the door to aid the door in opening and not to break the hinges. Elizabeth's agents all moved their hands to their gun holsters, prepared for anything. Then a frantic thin young man comes running out, still wearing his fashionable farm jacket. It was Chase, Elizabeth's personal assistant. Just this way Madam President. Chase stated, not able to hold back his grin at these words. Not you too. She rolled her eyes. Yes, now this way, we have everything set up. You need to make a televised national address before we lose broadcast and streaming capabilities. Oh, and it will be aired on all radio frequencies as well. Shauna has already written a speech for you. Chase told her, speaking rapidly. Okay, first I need to met with General Hill to get an update on our military response and ally coordination. Elizabeth directed in stride. The nuclear blast door was coming to a close as they all entered the bunker. Elizabeth walked into a room with monitors and computers. Similar in style to the Mission Control Center at NASA in Houston, Texas, but with only four people operating the computers. General Nancy Hill, an old thicker black woman with a faded black marine insignia tattooed, barely visible, on her neck, from her early days as one of the first female marines. General Hill turns to face Elizabeth and salutes. Stop it! Elizabeth said, approaching her and hugging her. Nancy, it's awful out there. Does anyone have any clue what they want? No, there has not been any contact from the machines or even signals from the mothership. SETI has all radio dishes aimed at it, if they send any word we will know. We are still gathering information and will have an assessment for you on the situation momentarily. The men stationed here are not exactly top-notch, this facility was never meant to be used and all funding for full-time personnel was always allocated for Mount Weather. So, we are still getting the facility up and getting operational. Oh, and there's one more thing, you should know. Senator Leonard Anderson is here, as soon as he got the emergency alert he came straight here on his own. Apparently he has personal access codes to get in here. Nancy told her in a whisper. Elizabeth looked around, 
Everything in this room except the computers and monitors looked as if it was designed in the 90s, and some of the cobwebs had probably been there since the Clinton administration. Which, in fact, was the administration that ordered the construction of this facility when the untied states had a surplus and fear of a Soviet rebirth. Where is he? Elizabeth inquired. He is in the mess hall, tending to his wife. Nancy said, rolling her eyes. Elizabeth smirked. Senator Leonard Anderson was from the opposing party. He was recently spotted on talk shows spreading outlandish conspiracy theories against the administration and filibustered a bipartisan bill on expanding voting rights just within the past month. He was the scum that gave Congress a bad reputation. So, Elizabeth was not thrilled that out of all the good people, including her two best friends, he had to be the one safe and sound. The coward, disregarding his duty to the people, and fled to a bunker without proper protocol. Has there been any word from England? Or Boston by chance? Elizabeth asked, trying to mask her worry. Ah, uh, let me check. Lieutenant. Any word from our allies in the UK? Specifically, on the whereabouts of Dr. Harris? And pull up the NSA's feed of Harvard's main campus security feeds. Nancy ordered. The man that sat at a computer in the center of the room began to type. Thank you Nancy. Elizabeth told her kindly. They both turned to face the monitors on the backside of the room. Several of the smaller monitors mounted alongside the giant screen in the middle showed the machine insects cutting down the cityscape of New York City, Louisiana, and even Austin, Texas. It was chaos and death everywhere. Elizabeth held her breath as the center screen went blank as the feed changed from a map of the U.S. to a live feed of security cams on campus Harvard, where both of Elizabeth's kids were attending. The campus was in shambles, red brick blasted everywhere, bodies of students and professors alike laid among the rumble. As the camera automatically panned, the leg of one of the giant machines could be seen walking away from the scene as if its job was done. Elizabeth let out a gasp as a tear fell from her eye. Liz, I'm, I'm a... Lieutenant, any word on Dr. Harris? He was in Essex meeting with a member of the royal family. Nancy's voice cracked as she asked. Sorry, ma'am, there has not been any word on any member of the royal family. Before the lieutenant stopped answering, Elizabeth had fled the room. Her two agents began to follow her out. Ha, uh, boys. Let her be. This place is as sealed up tight than a virgin's asshole, she can go to the bathroom by herself. Nancy ordered, but officially was just a request of the president's secret service agents. They nodded their heads to the general in agreement but stepped out of the room and stood guard in the doorway to at least keep an eye on the president. Elizabeth walked quickly down a hall, then randomly turning down another, tears streamed from her face. Today was a trying day, she lost her two best friends, probably her children, and her husband is missing. Plus, above all else, the country and the world were falling into chaos, and much of the world was looking to her for answers. She collapsed along a wall at the end of a dead-end hall just beside a wood-paneled door that she thought must be a closet. Elizabeth put her head on her knees and began to sob. This is not a reflection of her ability or gender. Even the most hardened man, after losing all those he loved, watching millions, probably billions die, as the pressure mounts on top as the world seeks guidance and reassurance. Crying is a way to allow your brain to process your emotion and allow for an emotional outlet. Crying and showing emotion has no bearings on one's abilities. Her knees on her pantsuit had copious amounts of water droplet stains on them. From tears and snot that had dripped down. As she sniffed, she heard a man in the closet speak. 
You are trespassing on government property. Please remove yourself, I have authorization to fire if the door is approached. Elizabeth stood up quickly, straightening her blouse and wiping her cheeks of tears. Then over an intercom or speaker of sorts, she heard a male's voice pleading. I am an American citizen, seeking refuge, we have little children upstairs and there are four of these massive alien robots just at the base of the mountain. Please help us. Elizabeth's eyes widened as she heard this voice pleading for refuge. She reached for the door and swung it open. There was a thin man in a solid dark green t-shirt and cameo pants. He jumped as she walked in, hitting the joystick that controlled the camera. She looked on the monitor in front of him, and two young men were standing about two yards away from the main entrance to the bunker in a dank wine cellar. One was holding a cat. He stood up quickly, giving her a salute. At ease. What's going on? Elizabeth asked. He sat back down. Nothing ma'am, just people trespassing held up in the old lodge above. Hang on. He leaned forward and pressed a button to talk into a microphone mounted next to the joystick. We are aware of the situation outside. This is a government installation, please remove and confine yourselves upstairs. Do not repeat what you have seen down here. I have authorization to fire on any. Another voice rang over the speaker from the monitor. It was the gentleman holding the cat, Elizabeth squinted and noticed he was of Asian descent. Please, you are better than this. I immigrated here to get away from tyrannical regimes. America is supposed to be for the people. These words stirred her pride in the American dream within her. Don't you think we should let these people in? Elizabeth inquired. The soldier hesitated, not sure how to answer. All he knew was, he had his orders. What's your name? Elizabeth asked the soldier at the desk, but before he could answer, his eyes widened and he jumped to his feet, standing at attention. I appreciate the formality but you don't have to do that just to speak to me. Elizabeth told him in a confused but comforting tone of voice. At ease, private. A gruff voice was heard right behind Elizabeth. He was so close she could feel his breath on the back of her neck. It was Senator Anderson. Elizabeth rolled her eyes as she turned around to face him. Senator. Elizabeth said flatly. Secretary Harris. I didn't know you would be joining us here in my state. I thought you'd be with your elite at Mount Weather. He said with a grin, an unlit cigar rested on the corner of his mouth. Senator Anderson was a big burly man. If he wasn't in a business suit, one could confuse him for a mountain man, with his bushy graying beard on his round beach ball size head. Even though he was a Yale-educated businessman from a New England family, he spoke with a folksy southern Appalachian draw. Elizabeth swelled in anger in the face of his pompous demeanor. Mount Weather has fallen. As has President Washington, VP Tillinghouse, Speaker Jefferson and Senator Montgomery suffered a heart attack, probably because of his severe age of 86, in all the terror at the Capitol. So, Senator, you are addressing the United States of America's Commander-in-Chief, under the rule of martial law. Elizabeth spoke with fierce command in her voice. She seemed to grow taller than he, radiating with the power of authority that the office of the presidency could only emanate from. At that moment, she accepted her role as president. The cigar fell limp in Senator Anderson's mouth, almost falling out. He reached up to take it from his mouth, the president turned around to the private still standing there awkwardly watching this exchange. Private, open that door. I may not be able to help everyone, but I will help these people asking for help and taking refuge in this mountain lodge.
President Elizabeth Harris commanded. He nodded and sat back down. He began to type commands into the keyboard. Elizabeth bent down to look at the monitor closer. The tall guy put his arm around the man holding the cat and began to pet the cat. You cannot just let some queers and their riffraff of families in here. We only have so much food and space, acting president, and you need congressional approval to Senator Anderson began to bark, stressing the word acting. Elizabeth crossed her arms and looked him full in the face cutting him off. Oh, but Senator. It was you and your colleagues, in the dead of night over 20 years ago, two days after September 11th, that granted the executive branch in wartime. Full authority from congressional oversight. And under martial law, the military is in charge, and as Command-in-Chief of the Armed Forces you are a guest in my bunker, plus aren't you concerned for your constituents? Elizabeth told him with no apology or diplomacy in her voice. Anderson's face flushed red in anger, he stormed out of the little guard room, slamming the door on his way out. Elizabeth exhaled. She hated confrontation, but after staring down foreign dictators, tyrants, and warlords over her long career, a sniffling snowflake of a senator did not frighten her, just pissed her off. The private hit a green button that lit up as he finished typing. The door began to open. Ma'am permission to speak freely? The private asked, turning his computer chair to face her. Sure. She answered. It was an honor to have witnessed that, ma'am. That man is a complete and total dickhead. Elizabeth snorted in laughter at his words. The private smiled. And it's Grant ma'am, Private First Class Timothy Grant. She patted him on the shoulder. That he is Private Grant? That he is. Outside in the lodge's wine cellar, T and Lee watched in stunned silence as the giant nuclear blast door engaged and began to swing open. We are safe baby. T whispered to Lee, they kiss, and Lily squirms out of Lee's arms running over to the massively thick door. She squeezes through the opening to the Mount Chester Secure Operation Facility. End of Part 2 Next time of the Seeker's Invasion What will the newly appointed president do to help her people? Will the machine insects continue to destroy Earth? How will T and his family assist inside the bunker? What are Huey invaders? And what do they want from Earth? Stay tuned for the next publication of The Seeker's Invasion Part 2. If you are listening on podcast, subscribe to get the next episode loaded to your playlist. Follow for updates on tadriley.com. Copyright 2021 by Tad J. Riley.